Out in the Bay thanks Project Open Hand for its support. Project Open Hand's medically tailored food helps Bay Area residents recover from illness, get stronger, and lead healthier lives. Project Open Hand serves people with HIV AIDS, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and other critical illnesses. Learn more at openhand.org. Welcome to Out in the Bay. Queer Radio. I'm Christopher Beale. This week, we look inside openly gay Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg's groundbreaking campaign with author Paul Mason Barnes. There is never anything, anytime I met him, superficial about it. You know, from what you may see or read in the media is amplified in person. You know, he is all of those things and then some. And it's all authentic. His time on Mayor Pete's campaign while directing theater is chronicled in his book, Paul for Pete, or How I Became a Septuagenarian Fanboy. He talks with Eric Jansen out in the Bay. I should mention, because this is out in the Bay, that although I grew up on the East Coast, I moved to Palo Alto when I was in the eighth grade. And so I am a Bay Area kid, and I just want to establish my Bay Area creds. The Bay Area creds, indeed. Coverly High School, if I recall, right? Yeah. It's no longer a high school. Paul Mason Barnes, welcome to Out in the Bay. Hey, thank you very much, Eric. It's nice to be here. This is a letter that I received unsolicited. I titled this in the book, Fan Mail for a Fanboy. Paul, I'm going to make a confession. I was so moved and motivated by your daily peak posts throughout the entire election cycle. Your enthusiasm was infectious, and I just wish a few more people had joined the chorus, including myself. Your passion and corresponding content made an impact. I can tell you that firsthand. I know, looking back, that your posts helped gradually crystallize my impressions of Pete as a viable candidate, and by the spring of 2020, he became my clear favorite. I was certainly subject to many other voices in media, but your passion and authenticity struck a chord with me. I liked Pete. I was curious about Pete and early on impressed by him, but you helped me to be inspired by him. And by the end of the day, I think it's a really beautiful example of the power of the grassroots movement that carried him as far as he got. I mean, he wasn't the odds on favorite. Too young, too inexperienced, too gay, not a household name. and. With that name, Buddha Judge, he had his work cut out for him. But damn it, he's a star. And I do believe if he keeps his nose clean, he can, should, and will be president. I think he's that good. That's from Dave Schutz in Minneapolis. You know, it speaks to many things in the book. First of all, the importance of getting involved, as well as, you know, about Pete himself and the impression he created as people got to know it. What got you so fired up about Pete Buttigieg? Well, first of all, I think elections are in many ways about contrast. And after Hillary Clinton won the popular vote but lost the electoral college vote and Donald Trump became president, I was just plunged into a kind of ongoing pit of despair that only grew worse over his administration and especially over those first two years until we began to get into the Democratic primary. And suddenly, Pete Buttigieg declared his possible interest in running for the Democratic Party nomination. And he provided such a distinct contrast to what was in the Oval Office that that really reached out to me. 
part of it, of course, had to do with the fact that he is an openly gay man. But what that really translated to me was he was an authentic human being. As a friend of mine, early in his campaign, I purchased a lot of copies of his wonderful memoir, Shortest Way Home, and began to give it to people so they could educate themselves about who Pete was, because I thought his was a really important voice. And one of the friends I passed along a copy to said, so in other words, he has nothing to hide. And I said, yeah, that's exactly right. And contrast that with this person who was our president, whose entire life and career is built on a construct of falsehoods and uh, invention. And, you know, that contrast right away spoke to me. But so did Pete's voice. I think he's a progressive. I think people label him as a pragmatic progressive. Uh, I loved his ideas. I loved the fact that he could complete a sentence and conjugate a verb correctly. I mean, that too was contrast from what we had had two years of. So I started out like many people do. I sent the campaign a contribution and I was early enough on that I really began to communicate with the five people in a closet in South Bend, Indiana, which is how his preliminary staff described it. This would be February, 2019. And I uh, began corresponding with them, got to know them a bit. And they asked me, invited me to become a grassroots fundraiser for the campaign. I'd never done that. I'm a theater director and I've raised money for theaters. I've written grants. I've done that, but I've never raised money for a political campaign. I thought about it for a couple of days and said, sure, I'll give this a try. And I thought I would get a lot of guidance from the campaign itself. But the one bit of guidance that I really got was tell your story. And so that's what I did again and again and again. And I told Pete's story and it turned out I was a very good grassroots fundraiser. And I should be clear that, you know, I was always a volunteer. I was never a staff member. I was never paid for anything. And I was always within his top 20 grassroots fundraisers, often within his top 10. As I became more involved and began raising money for the campaign, one of the things that I hammered at from the get-go is that I believe, because I know them and I work with them all the time, that there is a very engaged uh, universe of artists out here. Theater people are often looked at as dare-do-wells. You know, they stay up late, they drink, they smoke, they do drugs, they're whatever. But the fact of the matter is that the arts people that I work with, especially the theater people that I work with, are some of the healthiest, most trim, most fit, most politically engaged, most well-read people in my life. And we have just been waiting for somebody to take the arts serious as part of their campaign. Early on, one of Pete's first campaign proposals, one of his first policy rollouts, was the Frederick Douglass Plan for Black America. And somewhere buried in that proposal was a statement about increased funding for Black artists, Black arts and culture, it was one of the earliest signs that I was being heard, that, you know, what I had to say was being heard and being incorporated into the work that they were doing. In January of 2020, I went to a gathering of Pete's fundraisers in Chicago. Now that Pete had been introduced and the first round of debates had taken place and America was getting to know him, it was about shifting the focus of the campaign strategy into what they were calling win the era. 
And uh, we had a, a great weekend of planning and breakout sessions. And I went to one that was run by Sonal Shaw is her name. And she was his director of policy. At the end, you know, there was time for question and answers. It was kind of a small breakout session. I just said, can you tell me, what are you doing about the arts? You know, what are your arts policies? I haven't seen them yet. She said, well, we're working on them. And we plan to double the funding to the NEA and to the National Endowment of the Humanities. And we're going to get rid of the tax cuts that have crippled so many artists' working life. I mean, we've been hit so hard with that stuff. I said, you know, that's great. And I said, you know, there's a whole community out here that's just waiting to hear from you about this. And she said, well, it sounds like you'd like to be on our arts policy advisory committee. And I said, you're damn right I would. What did you find were people's reactions, either straight people or gay people, when you talked to them about uh, his candidacy and the fact that he is openly gay? They were varied. Many, many people were very skeptical. I mean, very few people I knew I'd really heard of him. And so part of my job was to educate them about him and his candidacy. And at first, when I first heard that he was really seriously considering a run, I thought, wow, that's fantastic. An openly gay mayor from South Bend, Indiana. But my next thought, as I write in the book, was not a snowball's chance in hell. But then I began to reconsider that. And I thought, we elected a black president twice by overwhelming popular vote margins. We elected a female candidate, overwhelming margin, popular vote. And then this failed real estate developer became our president, this reality show, television show host. And so clearly, to me, anything was possible in American politics. Donald Trump was possible, but so was Barack Obama, and so was Hillary Clinton. And I kept thinking, you know, younger people are going to be excited by this guy. He's young, he's smart, he's got this great energy about him. And most of the people I know in my life, no matter their age or their generation, could care less about a person's sexual identity or gender or any of that. And I thought younger people will be drawn to his campaign. And who knows? Anything's possible. But because he spoke so much to me directly in what he was saying and who he was, I thought it was really worth getting involved. And even though it didn't turn out the way, you know, we wished, or I wish, many of us wished, I don't regret a moment of that time. One of the things that was puzzling to me was some early reaction and maybe late reaction from, from the gay community about him not being gay enough, whatever that means. I think it was a gay columnist in the LA Times who described Pete as palatable. And I just thought, hmm, okay, yes, I think he is. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. He is smart. He's opinionated. He doesn't hold back. And yet, I mean, he looks like your next door neighbor. And, and that's what this columnist meant by palatable. Yeah, exactly. And that anger you talked about, I mean, there were people in the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren campaign who thought, well, he's pulling votes away and he can't possibly win. So, you know, we don't like it. Yeah, that was definitely my experience and my impression. And I'm sorry to say that during my time on the campaign, you know, I interacted with people, volunteers from many campaigns and the people who were uniformly nasty and unhelpful and uncollegial and also rather duplicitous came from Bernie Sanders' campaign. And it was, it was very distinct because they were the only ones. Did you ever meet Mayor Pete in I person? Did. Several times. I met him at a couple of campaign rallies that I went to work on in Reno, you know, for the caucuses. Reno is just a five-hour drive from Ashland, 
where I live and I don't mind a five hour drive. And I met him briefly, you know, after those rallies backstage, so to speak, but, and I did many Zoom calls with him and, and other people. And, but at this um, Chicago fundraising event that I spoke about earlier, we were told when we went there, first of all, they didn't want any leaks. So we had to check our phones at the door where we met for dinner the first night we were there. It was an entire weekend that we spent together. And we were told because we're so close to the Iowa caucuses that Pete was going to be in Iowa, that he wouldn't be attending our weekend, but he sent us all his best greetings. Anyway, it turned out that he showed up at our first dinner and there were about a hundred of us at this gathering and we were all seated at tables for 10. And so he gradually after dinner made his way around from table to table and sat with each table for 10 or 15 minutes, just talking, just shooting the with us. And, you know, he talked about anything and everything from his favorite IPA, which was an Indiana IPA, to his favorite scotch, which was Macallan, to marriage equality in Taiwan, because somebody at our table had just been able to legally marry his partner, now husband, in Taiwan as well as in America. You know, and I talked to him about uh, mixing faith and politics because that was a kind of unique aspect about Pete and Michael Gerson, the columnist for the Washington Post, who I happen to know because his brother is an actor I've worked with a lot, uh, had just published a column in the Washington Post about an interview that he had had with Pete about faith and politics. So, you know, we had a great conversation and he was always, you know, look you in the eye, shake your hand and don't let go until the transaction was complete. There was never anything, anytime I met him, superficial about it. You know, from what you may see or read in the media is amplified in person. You know, he is all of those things and then some, and it's all authentic. You're listening to Out in the Bay, Queer Radio. I'm Christopher Beale. Out in the Bay is supported in part by Project Open Hand, providing 2,500 life-saving meals and 200 bags of groceries daily to sustain people experiencing illness, social isolation, or the health challenges of aging. Learn more at openhand.org. Project Open Hand, meals with love. Now back to Eric Jansen's chat with Paul Mason Barnes, author of Paul for Pete, or How I Became a Septuagenarian Fanboy. With the word septuagenarian in the title, were you much older than most folks on the campaign? And how was that? Well, you know, there was a very funny thing that people said about Pete's campaign and his success as a candidate. And that was that, that he was an older person's idea of a young person. So that wasn't the case for me. I, uh, you know, I was drawn to him because of his ideas, because of his authenticity, because he was articulate, because I always learned whenever I listened to him. There were a wide range of people working on his campaign, volunteering for his campaign. I think a lot of people in my age category, but there were also a lot of younger people. And of course, it's a very youthful business. I mean, there are so many, you know, young people who are working on campaigns. I mean, paid staff members. I think it's a, it's a young person's game. But in terms of the range of volunteers, it was wide open age-wise, gender-wise, ethnicity, race, you name it. I mean. He ran a campaign in which everybody had a place at the table. And when he talked about diversity, I mean, it was such a diverse campaign staff. You know, I mean, most of the people I worked with were, were female. Most of those were African-American. I mean, it was really 
kind of stunning, the, the full range of diversity in this campaign. And of course, a lot of them were gay, but nobody was really asking or paying attention. You just sort of got it as you became involved. Let's talk about the midterms now. First of all, how important or crucial do you see these particular midterms coming up? Oh, I think they're really crucial up and down the ballot. And I think, you know, starting locally with school board elections, which are getting really scary, city council elections, which are getting really scary, all the way up to, you know, gubernatorial races and senatorial campaigns and the House of Representatives. I mean, of late, people, it seems to me, have been paying closer attention to the accomplishments of the Biden administration, which are, you know, spectacular. You know, when you add them all up and put them all together, what they've been able to accomplish, especially with such thin majorities in the House and in the Senate in particular. And so there seems to be, you know, a kind of wave that's beginning to happen that gives us hope that we're going to hold on to the Senate, possibly even increase the majority there, and maybe not lose the House in the way that it's been predicted for the last two years. It's possible we might hold on to both. So it's crucial that people get out there and vote. You know, it's the one opportunity we have to truly make a difference. And looking at all of these things, the way in which school boards are going and, and city councils, you know, all the way up to the people who will approve nominations for the Supreme Court in the future. We just need to look at the Supreme Court right now, you know, to know that voting makes a difference. Because you can elect somebody like Donald Trump, and then a series of circumstances happen to go his way. So we end up with three nominees on the Supreme Court from the Trump administration. But, you know, it's true since the Dobbs decision that women in particular are just outraged. They're enraged and involved and registering to vote in greater numbers than we've seen for some time. And that's helpful. You know, and I think the Dobbs decision was a great wake-up call for all kinds of Americans, gay people certainly, you know, when you read or listen to what Clarence Thomas had to say about reconsidering things like the Obergefell decision, all of those things may be up for grabs. We shouldn't relax about any of it, and we shouldn't relax just because things are looking more positive now than they were a month ago or two months ago. You know, we've got to get out there and vote. We've got to get out there and work. So how would you suggest that someone get involved? I mean, maybe it sounds a little Pollyannish to say participate in democracy. Well, I think the first step is to contact a campaign that is of interest and concern for you, you know, whether it's a local election or something on a, you know, more national scale. But just get in touch with the campaign, go to their website, and you will find someplace to click volunteer in addition to donate which you will see easily. You can do phone banking, which I've done and which really sort of scared me at first when I considered the idea because I thought I'm making cold calls to talk about somebody who people may not want to hear about. Well, you know, you make 10 phone calls and maybe two people will pick up. I was always given a list of Democrat party members, registered voters, and, you know, the point was to talk to them about Pete and to make sure they were getting out to vote, period. You know, so it wasn't as intimidating or as scary, but not everybody has an appetite for that. Being involved in some way was the best antidote I had for the kind of despair I was feeling during the Trump administration. Being active, feeling that I was actually taking action and doing something, that made a huge difference. 
So getting moving and just not wallowing in your feelings of hopelessness can bring you back some feeling of, oh, there's actually something I can do and I can't yeah. make a difference. Don't be a victim. Take an active role. It's very rewarding. Before we close out here, I just want to let people know that the book is not all about politics. You also talk a lot about theater. I didn't really know how the book was going to go when I sat down to write it. And at first it was going to be like a stocking stuffer for friends who put up with me while I was you know, volunteering for Pete's campaign. But then people said, you've got a book here, so you should approach it from that point of view. And I did. But you know, my work in the theater has, been, has taken me all over the country. And that enabled me to do the particular work I was doing on the campaign anywhere I was, because it was all about connecting with people and raising funds, you know, which I could do. And all, all over the country. country. Yeah. So, you know, I was an asset to the campaign in that sense, but I could do it, you know, mostly online, on Zoom, whatever. So it was a great mix of theater and politics just meshing together. And then it turned out that Pete, who is married to a former theater teaching artist who actually you know, went to college with um, my partners and my great nephew. They were all doing theater together at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. So there's that weird little coincidence connection going on there. So it all felt strangely copacetic, integrated, you know, whatever the right word would be. So I do talk a lot about theater and the life of a theater artist. And, you know, I do a lot of Shakespeare and all of that. So there's that, but there's also you know, the trajectory of my life as an openly gay man, dating back to the 60s and Stonewall, all the way through marriage equality, passing, you know, getting handed down by the Supreme Court and, and beyond. So there's a lot about my, my life in that sense as well, from Stonewall through HIV AIDS to marriage equality. I mean, I've seen the full gamut, been there for all of it. In the book, you also get into your long relationship with your husband, Jim, right? Yeah. We met uh, here at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 1975. We've been together 47 years, and it's you know always been a very challenging and wonderful relationship because we are two non-traditional guys having careers in non-traditional fields. And so that's called for you know, a lot of non-traditional thinking and just playing by our rules and not adhering to anybody else's rules except our own. And, you know, one of our major rules has been, we always say yes to each other's opportunities. Separation has always been a part of the relationship. It's just been a feature of it because of the kind of work we do. We talk, we communicate, and it's always been really interesting and really exciting. In the middle of Pete's campaign, Jim experienced a stroke, which has resulted in expressive aphasia which is ironic for somebody whose life and career has centered on language as an actor and a director. So that whole journey. And to be clear, expressive, expressive aphasia means he has a hard time. It, it's not so much he has a hard time talking as it's a hard time getting to the right word that he knows he wants to say and can't quite close that synapse. So, you know, it's a lot of, you know, recovery in that area, but he talks very freely. It's just getting the brain to access the word that he knows but can't quite say. So, you know, having that happen in the middle of Pete's campaign didn't slow me down much in the campaign because Jim wouldn't want that to happen. And you talk about this in the book too. You write yeah, about this absolutely. as well, right? Yep. Yep. In a big way. 
Why did you think it was important to include that in the book? Because it happened in the campaign three years ago, August 2019. So we were in the heat of it. We were in the middle of it. And as I said, the fortune, the good fortune of my volunteer work on the campaign was that so much of it could be done online, on the phone, on the computer, you know, so I could be doing it anywhere. And what that meant was I could do it at home which I did. And I curtailed the travel. I withdrew from some upcoming directing assignments and I helped Jim with a directing assignment that he had here locally. So life throws you curveballs, and you just have to catch them and pitch them back and, and figure out what it all means and how are you going to deal with it? As we talked about earlier with the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade and threats that are implied there to LGBTQ folks, to transgender people, personal body rights, personal integrity. What do you see for politics right now for the LGBTQ community? I just see there's a lot of work to be done. And we happen to be in an era, however long or short-lived it's going to be, in which fear and hatred has been legitimized. And it's going to take sweeping that aside for us to be fully confident about our rights. And I think we're fortunate in that the majority of Americans, first of all, are opposed to overturning Roe v. Wade, and the majority of Americans are in favor of gay rights and, and marriage equality. And fortunately, we still have some politicians in office who are willing to do the right thing, you know, fight for us. I just think this is one of those turning points or places where we are going to take a step or two back, but we have to keep working. We have to keep fighting until this movement of hatred and fear has somehow, you know, we've gotten rid of it. And it's not going to be just Donald Trump going to jail, but he has inspired people like Greg Abbott and people like Ron DeSantis and people like Tom Cotton and you know, a lot of high-ranking politicians in the GOP are enacting policies that are in many ways, I think, worse than his policies. And it's just going to take us some time. And we're going to need good people in the courts, which is another reason why we need to vote. So I think, I think it's there. I think it's happening. I think it's the right thing. I think, like Martin Luther King, that the road to, to justice is long and hard fought, and we just have to keep going. With your travels as a theater director, kind of all over the country, out here on the West Coast or, or either coast of the, of the middle of America, how different do you think people's perspectives are? They're more similar than they are different in that I think the divide in this country has more to do with urban, suburban versus rural. For instance, here in Oregon, you're safe, so to speak, here in Ashland, which is liberal progressive. And then you have to go about 180 miles north to Eugene, where you can feel safe again. And then all the way up the Willamette Valley, all up that corridor, that I-5 corridor, it's all liberal progressive, predominant. But if you get east of the Cascades, where it's just nothing but farmland and ranch land and rural towns, small towns, small communities, it's blood red. And I think you just see that all over the country, that you know, it's not so much the coastal elites versus the heartland. I think it has a lot more to do with urban, suburban, and rural. 
And because that's what I experience where I travel. A little bit of a road trip around the country with uh, Paul Barnes directing theater and working on Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. Pick up a copy of his book, Paul for Pete, or How I Became a Septuagenarian Fanboy. Thanks again so much, Paul, for being here. I really appreciate you it. Bet. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Eric. You've been listening to Out in the Bay Queer Radio. You can find Paul Barnes' book, Paul for Pete, at paulforpete.com or in the link to this week's show at outinthebay.org. You can catch up with past episodes of Out in the Bay, get in touch, and sign up for our email newsletter at outinthebay.org. You can also make a donation there. That's outinthebay.org. Your donation helps us keep bringing queer air to your ears. Out in the Bay is a nonprofit independent production, which means we rely on listener support to keep the show going. Please chip in what you can at outinthebay.org. Special thanks to Brad Payton and Richard Merck of Silicon Valley for their ongoing generous support. Thanks also to KALW 91.7 FM and San Francisco Public Press's radio station KSFP 102.5 FM in the San Francisco Bay Area for broadcasting out in the Bay each week. If you'd like to hear queer radio on your local public radio station, let them know and let us know. You can reach out anytime by emailing outinthebay at yahoo.com. Our founding producer is Eric Jansen. Our theme music is by Holly Mead. I'm Christopher Beale. I edited this episode of Out in the Bay. You can find me at Real Chris J. Beale on social media, and we'll see you next week out in the Bay.